This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. New content will be available every week throughout 2015. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Again, for the eighth time, we want to go into 2 Kings, this time chapter 5. And uh, we are following in the footsteps of a prophet, Elisha, and looking at his life and ministry, seeing what we can glean from that and learn from that. And uh, so come with me please to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5, of course, is uh, without a shadow of doubt the best known miracle of Elisha the prophet, uh, the cleansing of Naaman the leper. And isn't it interesting that even though Elijah is mentioned some 29 times in the New Testament, that Elisha only gets one mention, and it's about this healing of the leper. And Jesus in Luke 4.27 said that there was many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, but only one was healed, and that was Naaman the Syrian. So that's strangely the only mention he gets in the whole of the New Testament. And uh, so let us now begin to read this. I'm sure there's not a pastor or minister in this country uh, in their ministry that has not preached a, a, a message on Naaman the leper at some point or other in their tenure, whatever church they're in, sometimes maybe three or four times. I've certainly preached on it many times over the years. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. Uh, but we're going to look at it to, uh, this morning with perhaps new eyes and uh, maybe see some fresh things here. It says, Now Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was also a mighty man of valor, but a leper. But a leper. Uh, Naaman was the commander of the armed forces of Syria, second only to Ben-Hadad II. Uh, no doubt he was a soldier from his youth, and probably because of his great ability and his courage, he was able to make it up to the ranks, uh, probably very quickly indeed, until he gets to the top rank, second only to the king, commander of all the armed forces of the whole of Syria. And uh, it tells us he, he was an honorable man in the eyes of his master, so he was very, very well loved and liked uh, by the king. He was a man of tremendous valor. He proved himself on the field of battle of being, as being very courageous. Uh, he was the one, by the way, which doesn't say here, but he was the one uh, who defeated the, the Assyrians. The Assyrians and the Syrians were ancient enemies. And uh, he was the one who defeated uh, the great Assyrians who were very, very warlike and who were a tremendous uh, military nation. So that shows you the kind of valor and courage that this man had. But notice also it says, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Now isn't that interesting? Syria was an ancient enemy of Israel. And they're still an ancient enemy of Israel to this day. After thousands of years, they're still enemies, enemies of Israel. But the Lord gave him victory 
over the Assyrians. So it shows you how the Lord works in different nations, not just with Israel in the Old Testament, but with different nations even to this day, even when they're unaware of it, even when he doesn't even get the glory for it, but he's still working behind the scenes. And so he was this tremendous, mighty man, honorable, courageous, but he was a leper. He was a walking dead man. In those days, leprosy was incurable. And it was a very debilitating disease. It was a slow burn. But eventually, inevitably, it would get you to the point where you'd be so uh, disabled. It was a dif disfiguring disease. Uh, all the nerve ends of the extremities, whether that's your ears, or your nose, or your fingertips, or your toes, uh, would go numb. And very often because of maybe injuries and, and hurting themselves and different things without feeling it, they would become disfigured. Maybe nose and ears would begin to drop off. Uh, and so that, that was his future. Uh, that's what was facing him, which is terrible for anybody, but for such a, a high and mighty man, for such a, a great man, it must have been something terrible. His whole future was coming ahead of him, and all he could see was darkness and blackness and, and an awful disease racking his body. Sin very often is typified in the Old Testament by leprosy. Leprosy was an insidious disease, and sin is insidious, and it's always lurking. And as time goes on, it gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse in all of us who are afflicted with sin. And so for a number of reasons, it, it typifies, leprosy typifies sin in the Old uh, Testament. But here he is, this great man, but he's a leper. And the Syrians had gone out on raids and had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel, and she waited on Naaman's wife. We don't know the name of this little captive girl, but can you imagine what it must have been like for this little girl, maybe 14 years old, maybe something like that, uh, at least was old enough to be able to be a slave. And can you imagine what it must have been like from her, for her? Uh, the Syrians would raid uh, villages and towns along the border of Israel. And these were Naaman's soldiers that was doing the raiding. And they would raise the villages, and they would kill many and take many captive. So maybe this young woman had maybe maybe had seen her parents being killed. Maybe seen her whole family wiped out. Maybe she was the only survivor in her whole family. And here she was carted off to Damascus to be sold as a slave. And it so happened that Naaman, this great general. Uh, he bought this young woman as a present for his wife, as another slave for his, his wife. And it's interesting, as we'll see in a moment, her attitude. What would our attitude be if we were just a young teenager and we were taken captive and maybe saw her, maybe never to see her family ever again and taken to a foreign country and sold as a slave and ended up in this household of the very general of the very armies that took you as a slave? What would her attitude be? But this young woman's a godly young woman. This young woman knows the Lord. 
And her attitude is completely different. Listen to what it says. She waited on Naaman's wife, and then she said to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. Now, we would forgive her if she had said, Isn't it wonderful that my enemy is smitten with this dreadful disease? We would, would have forgiven her if in her heart she would have felt that way towards her enemy. But she didn't. In fact, it was the opposite. She had compassion on him. She felt sorry for him. And she felt if only he could go to Samaria. There's a prophet there who would heal him of his leprosy. If only I could get him to do that. What a godly young woman. What an entirely different attitude she had. And it shows you how she must have been raised as a young woman, knowing about Elisha the prophet. Everybody in Israel knew about him, but no doubt her parents, who were godly people, uh, brought her up to tenor these things, to highlight the goodness of God and the power of God. And she believed all of that. And here she is, making this compassionate suggestion and saying that there's a prophet in Israel who had healed him of his leprosy. You know, she had a lot of confidence and faith in the prophet. Elisha never had healed anybody of leprosy up to this point. Jesus said there was many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, but none were healed except Naaman the Syrian. And so this, wee, this little girl is putting her faith out there, isn't she? She's really trusting and believing that if only he'd get to Elisha, that God would do something for this man. Thus and thus, no, sorry, verse 4. And Naaman went in and told his master, saying, Thus and thus says the little girl who is from the land of Israel. And then the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so that would be protocol. Uh, they were en enemies, these two nations. And so for, for King Ben-Hadad II, for him just to send his top general with an entourage into another nation, that would, could be construed as a declaration of intent to war. So he, he didn't want that. Uh, he wanted this to go well for Naaman, uh, his, his great general. So he sent this letter as a way of introduction. So that part's okay. That would be expected. That would be good. But it's the next part is not so good. Uh, it goes on here. The king of Syria said, Go now and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver and six thousand shackles of gold and ten changes of clothing. Then he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised... When this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. Hmm. Here's an ungodly king. He doesn't understand remotely how God works, he's an unbeliever. And he thinks that. The way that the God of Israel is going to do this is through giving gifts to the king 
and sending this letter. Not one thought in his brain about Elisha the prophet. Not even mentioned. Doesn't even come into his thinking. And that would be typical, obviously, of unbelievers. You know, the little girl never said anything about the king of Israel. Naaman didn't say anything to him about the king of Israel. But that was his first thought. In Acts 27, whenever the apostle Paul, as a prisoner to Rome, was on his way to Rome as a prisoner in that ship, and he senses in his spirit that there's going to be trouble. He senses there's going to be trouble upon board. There's going to be even loss of life. And he warns the centurion who's over the captives. He said, look, I feel there's going to be great hurt and damage done if we continue in this journey right now. And it says the centurion paid more heed to the helmsman than he did to Paul which is typical, isn't it? What does the preachers know? What does the man of God know? He's a religious boy. What does he know? He's not a sailor. He's not a captain of a ship. What does he know about weather and the sea and seal? So he totally ignored him, at least initially, until the storm came up. And then it was the preacher they were looking for in the end, wasn't it? But here's the king doing the same thing, and this is typical, isn't it? Then it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends a man to me to heal him of his leprosy? Therefore, please consider and see how he seeks a quarrel with me. Ah. <laughs> he knew there was nothing he could do. He's saying, who, do you, who does he think I, does he think I'm a God that I could do such a thing as heal a man of his leprosy? No, no, no. He, he's wanting a, a quarrel with me. He's wanting me to send Naaman back again as a leper and that will be a pretext to start a war with me. And so he tears his clothes. He's afraid. He's panicking. He's in a sense mourning he doesn't know what to do. And so it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes that he sent to the king saying, why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. Hmm. There was many prophets in Israel. There was 400 prophets of Baal. There was other prophets for other cults. And Elijah, his predecessor, had put them all to the sword. But now there are other prophets, prophets of God, schools of the prophets, if you please. And Elisha's saying, there's a prophet in Israel who can give you an answer to this. And so, then Naaman went with his horses and chariot. And he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Can you imagine that? Here's Elisha living in his little house, like a little house on the prairie, out there in Samaria. And here's this great 
commander of the armed forces with his great chariot and no doubt his elite band of soldiers around him, his special forces, his bodyguards with his retinue and his servants and all that gold and all that silver and all that changes of raiment and he's standing there and Elisha is in his little house and he, he's, he rides up and he stops outside of it. Could you imagine the scene? It must have been something to see. And what happens here? Then Naaman with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. He didn't even put his head out the door. He sent a servant, which presumably was Gehazi. He didn't even open the door to this great man. He would not be beholding to rank or status. He wouldn't be anybody's dog for a bone. You say, well, is he being rude? No, he was making sure that this man knew his position. This man here was obviously a proud man. We'll see this in a moment. He was very proud, and God knew his proud heart. Very often people who get to the very, very top of their profession, pride comes in, doesn't it? They're very proud of their status and position. He was no different. But for God to heal this man, he's going to have to humble his heart. And so Elisha begins right away. And he gets terribly offended. Listen to it. It says, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. A very simple thing to do. Childlike. Easy. But this is a problem often with unsaved people, unbelievers. Whenever we try to share the gospel with them, it sounds too easy. You mean to say all I have to do is believe, repent and believe. Is that all I got to do? Do you mean all I have to do is believe in what Jesus did on the cross? It sounds too simple, too easy. And it did for this man. All he had to do was go and wash seven times in the Jordan River. That's all. And if he, had a, if he was to do that, he would be instantly healed of his leprosy. But it's too easy. This proud man didn't like that. And so that pride rises up in his heart. But Naaman became furious. And he went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Are not Arbana and far, far the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he went away in a rage. Ah, Naaman, you don't understand. There's no healing properties in the Jordan River any more than Arbana and Farfar. What God wants is humility and obedience to his word. Right. Even though it doesn't sound right to you, and even though it sounds too simple, and even though all you have to do is believe, that's what God said. Right. And he didn't want to hear that. That old pride rose up and he get angry and furious. 
before you and I came to Christ, before we get saved, we had to humble ourselves, didn't we? We had to bend our knee. We had to become as a little child and acknowledge our sinfulness and acknowledge there was nothing we could do about it and acknowledge the only way to be saved is the way that God's Word tells us to be saved. But Naaman became furious and he went away and said, indeed I said to myself, that was the problem. He had all planned, it all thought out. This is, how, this is how it'll happen to me. This is the way this God will do it to me. <laughs> I'm a great man, you know. Look at my entourage. <laughs> Look at my position in life. Surely God will do something very special for me. No, he'll do for you what he'll do for anybody else. But it's got to be his way and only his way. So he turned and went away in a rage. And his servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had you to, told you to do something great, would you not have done it? Of course he would. If the prophet had told him to go up that mountain and run around that mountain seven times, he would have done it. If the prophet had told him you have to go out and kill a bear with your bare hands, he would have done it. He would have done anything. As long as it was hard, as long as he was seen to be doing something great, he would have done it. But these servants who loved their master, who must have been very clever in the way they approached him, because he's furious, he's raging. Well, they said, if he had told you to do something great and hard and difficult, wouldn't you have done that? Of course he would. How much more then when he says to you, Wash and be clean. He's asked you to do a simple little thing. Why didn't you do that? That was good advice. And so he went down and he dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. I never heard his sermon on it, but David Percy, who's now the current pastor of Whitewell Tabernacle, he had a brilliant title for this message. He called it Seven Little Ducks in a Dirty River. <laughs> That's not a great title. <laughs> Seven Little Ducks in a Dirty River. <laughs> and every time he dipped into this river, every time his pride was being washed away. His self-confidence has been washed away. His arrogance has been washed away. Except you become as a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And we had to humble ourselves, didn't we? We had to bow our knee and say, Lord Jesus, your way is the only way. And when that happened, his flesh was restored as the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. There he was, this great man, stripped down to his underwear, in the dirty river, with all of his entourage looking on. And he swallows his pride, 
And before all, he goes into the river. And God honors that. And instantly, what a moment that must have been, not only for him, but for everybody who was watching. They saw his body. They saw the leprosy on him. And when he rose out of the water the seventh time, there was no leprosy. It was instantly gone. What a miracle. Something happens to us when we, in simplicity and in humility and in simple faith, praise that prayer of repentance. Instantly, something happens beyond our understanding. We become a new creature in Christ. We're born again of God's Spirit. Amen? We don't know how that happens, but it does. And we know that it's happened because we're changed. Not only was Naaman changed on the outside, but he had been changed on the inside. His heart had been changed. Amen. <clears throat> Note this, verse 15. And he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him and said, Indeed now, indeed now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. This man is now a believer. He believes in Jehovah. Amen. This was a pagan, a worshiper of idols all of his life. And now, in an instant, he's a believer in the one true living God. And he's confessing it with his mouth. Paul says, if you believe in your heart the Lord Jesus and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, but with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So he came, he came back that 30 miles that he had just gone. He had 100 miles to go to Damascus, and I'm sure every part of him wanted to go and show his wife and his children and his king what had happened to him, but he was going to go and thank God first and confess him as Lord. Amen. Remember the 10 lepers that Jesus healed and only one came back? Only one come back out of the ten to give him thanks. So he's going back to thank God, to confess with his mouth what has happened. So we see he's humbled. He's a different man. Indeed, now I know that there's no God on all the earth except in Israel. Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. Well, that would be, he would think that's the expected thing to do. And after all, he's, he's got all this money and he's got all this gold. He's got 750 pounds of silver and 120 pounds of gold and he's got 10 changes of raiment. Surely, the prophet will take something for his trouble. But not this prophet. Not this prophet. But he said, as the Lord lives, 
before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. But he urged him to take it, but he refused. Now, there's a couple of reasons why he refused this. First of all, he didn't want this new convert. He didn't want him to think that he was only in it for the money, that he was only in this for all he could get out of it. That wasn't the heart of Elisha. All Elisha wanted was God to get the glory. That's all he wanted. The second reason why he refused it He wanted this man to know that what God had done for him was all of his grace, that it could not be bought with money. For as much as we were redeemed from, not redeemed from corruptible things like silver and gold, Peter said, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot or blemish could not be bought. And that's what he wanted this man to know. What God has done for you is through his grace, through his mercy. So I refuse anything from your hand. Not that he didn't need it. Remember the sons of the prophets were eating stew and barley loaves at this time. But he resisted it. He says no. So he refused. So Naaman said, then if not, please let your servant be given two mule loads of earth for your servant will no longer offer either burnt offerings or sacrifice to other gods, but to the Lord. That seems strange, doesn't it? But you have to understand what people believed in those days as pagans. They believed that gods of other nations could only be worshipped in those nations. And so, if he took earth from that nation, the god of that soil he could worship in his nation. He would build an altar with that soil to worship Jehovah, the God of Israel. You say, well, that sounds terrible. It's superstitious. It's nonsense. Yeah, it is. But notice that Elisha didn't correct him. He could have, but he didn't. He's just a new convert. So Elisha's going to give him a little bit of time. And anyway, when he goes back with the earth and he builds his altar, everybody's wanting to know, what is that? Why are you building an altar to the God of Israel? There are not enough gods in our country. Why are you building an altar to the God of Israel? And he would tell them, well, this is why. And then he'd give his testimony. So this would be used as a testimony for Jehovah. I think that's what Elisha's thinking. I'll let him away with this because he'll use this as a testimony. So he says, next he says, verse 18, yet in this thing may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the temple of Rimon to worship there and he leans on my hand and I bow down in the temple of Rimon. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord please pardon your servant in this thing. Ah, Hear what he's saying here? When the king goes to worship his God in the temple of Rimon, he leans on my arm. So when he bows down, I have to bow down. But I'm not going to be bowing down in my heart. 
because there's only one God, and that's the God of Israel. But this is part of my job. Now, Elisha could have said, well, you're going to have to take your stand. You're going to have to say to the king, you can no longer go into the temple. You can't bow down anymore. He could have said that, but he didn't. He didn't. In fact, he said, Shalom, go in peace. Sometimes we expect more from a new convert. Sometimes we demand more from a new convert. And sometimes we need to give him a little bit of attitude. This man had no theology at all. <laughs> None. He had no background in it. He never went to Sunday school. He knew nothing. All he knows is the God of Israel has healed me. That's all he knows at this point. Doesn't know anything. Never had read the Torah. Didn't know what the scriptures were. Nothing. He's a raw convert. We trust that that would change over time. So Elisha gives him a pass on this. Do you know in the early church, if you read in Acts 15, there was a row that brewed because Paul and Barnabas was out there winning the lost, the Gentiles to Christ. And they were getting wonderfully saved. But there was those from Jerusalem who, whose background had been Pharisees and priests. A great company of priests came to the Lord and some Pharisees came to the Lord and they were sticklers for the law. So they would come and they would say, really, they're not really saved unless they get circumcised. That's a commandment of the law. So unless they're circumcised, they're not saved. They're not really born again. That was their attitude. And it was causing friction and tension in the early church. So Paul and Barnabas decided that they needed to sort this out. And so they and others went to Jerusalem and there was like a council or a conference held and Peter was there and James there and Paul and Barnabas and others and they discussed it. And at the end of the discussion, they came up with this. Tell them, they wrote them a letter, tell the Gentile believers, they're true believers, and tell them to forget about the circumcision. It's nothing to do with them. But there's one or two other things. They're not to eat blood or things strangled. Kosher law was they were, the Jew was not allowed to eat blood or, or anything strangled because the blood would be still in it. The blood had to be drained out of it. And tell them not to do anything that's immoral or not to do anything with idols. So there's just four things. Two of them in a sense has often been said to him in the sense where a command, do not do anything immoral, do not do anything with idols. And that's understandable. That's for everybody, Jew and Gentile alike. But the other two things were a concession. A concession. In other words, he's telling the Gentiles, listen, if you're going to sit down and you're going to eat with Jews, you're going to offend them if you eat blood. You don't want to offend them. So abstain from that. Make that a concession. It's nothing to do with your salvation, but make it a concession. Same with things strangled. If you know the thing has been strangled, don't eat of it if you're in the company of a Jew. They're going to be offended. The Apostle Paul 
earlier on had said, listen, to, to Jewish Christians, he said, listen, <laughs> so we don't offend the Gentile Christians. He says, don't eat anything that's been offered unto idols. Because often animals were killed and it was offered as a token unto their idol, but then it was sold in the marketplace. And the Gentiles knew that. So he said, don't you eat an or it was been offered unto idols because you're going to offend these new Gentile Christians because they're going to look at you and say, well, I can't eat that, so why can you eat it? Well, Paul says, I can eat anything. He says, I can eat anything. It doesn't offend me. I don't believe in idols. I don't believe in other gods, so it doesn't offend me. But he says, for love's sake, so I won't offend my brother and stumble my brother. I'll refuse to take that for love's sake. So here is Elisha, in a way, letting him off the hook a little bit here. He's a new convert. He's given a little bit of time. He's a lot to learn. And Elijah's going to trust that he will learn. He's in a very important position. He can influence the king. He can influence his courtiers. And so Elijah must be thinking, I'll just let him do that. His heart's not bowing. At least his heart is not bowing. He's already declared there's only one God, and that's the God of Israel. So let him do that. So... As we start to wind up, we come to Gehazi. But Gehazi, well, verse 19 first, then he said to him, go in peace. So he departed from him a short distance. So in other words, he was just going down the road. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, Look, my master has spared Naaman the Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. Ah. What did Elisha say? As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. Gehazi says, as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. You see, in these little studies we have been doing, we have been worried about Gehazi. Something wasn't right. He was dismissive and he was rude with the woman of Shuman. He pushed her away. He was unbelieving and he wasn't very well spoken to Elisha when it came to the barley loaves. Something's not right about this fella. And here we're beginning to see his heart is not right. He's got a problem, and it's materialism. It's money. It's the gold. It's the silver. It's the clothes. One old writer, Bishop Hall, said, whenever Naaman went away, he said, Gehazi's heart was bound up in the chest of Naaman, and he had to run after it to fetch it. <laughs> Jesus said, where your treasure is, your heart will be there also. And now we're finding out where his heart is. It's in the treasure chest of Naaman. And so, he runs after him. 
I will run after him and take something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. And when Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, is all well. Now you can still see the humility in this man now. Imagine this great commander getting down from his chariot to talk to this servant, this Israelite servant would be unheard of. But he's humbled. Is all well? And he said, all is well. You're a lion toad. <laughs> all wasn't well. Wasn't well with his heart. He said, all is well. And then he says, my master has sent me, saying, indeed, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. Ah. He's prepared to lie and lie and lie. He'll do anything to get some of that silver, some of that money. He can't stop himself now. He's gone too far. Once he starts lying, lies just get bigger. He must get this. He must have it. Materialism has gripped him. Elisha, you see, didn't want any of it. And Naaman knew that and respected that. In fact, probably it lifted Elisha up in his estimation even more. And here's this man lying and lying about Elisha. What does he think about Elisha now? Huh, it wasn't long to change his mind, was he? Who knows what he's thinking? Maybe his estimation of Elisha was dropping. But Gehazi didn't care. All he wanted was the money. And it was blinding him. And so, Naaman said, verse 23, please take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of garments and handed them to two of his servants. And they carried them on ahead of him. And when he came to the citadel or to the hill, it was overlooking Samaria where he lived, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house. Then he let the men go and they departed. Hmm. Didn't think anybody would ever know about this. Like Achan, he stole the silver and the Babylonian garment and hid it in his tent. And he brought disaster to Israel, the fight against Ai. And so he looks around, and nobody sees him. Naaman's servants knew, but as far as they were concerned, there's nothing wrong with that. He's accepted a gift. And he hid it in his house. He looked all around, but he forgot to look up. <laughs> he forgot that God was looking down and seeing every move he made. 
So he stored them away in his house, then he let the men go, and they departed. Now he went in, and he stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, Where did you go, Gehazi? Good question. God is giving this man a chance to repent. At that moment, he should have known better. He'd been around Elisha long enough to know that this man is truly in touch with God. He can read men's hearts, but he's blinded. Where did you go, Gehazi? And at that moment, he should have realized, I've been caught on. And he should have fell on his knees and said, my master, I am sorry. I was tempted. I yielded. I did an awful thing. Please, can you forgive me? Can God forgive me? And I believe he would have instantly. <laughs> but he brazened it out. And he said, your servant did not go anywhere. And by saying that, he crossed a line. He crossed the Rubicon. There was no way back. Acts chapter 5. There's an explosion of growth within the early church. And people, Christians who own lands, were selling the land and getting the money and laying at the apostles' feet so that it could be evenly distributed amongst all these new believers. It was voluntary. Nobody put a gun to their head. They chose to do this. Ananias and Sapphira, they went out, sold their land. And then he came and gave some of it to Peter. Hmm. But he didn't tell him that. He gave the impression, we sold the land and we're giving all of it that other people were doing. Peter says, why have Satan filled your heart to the light of the Holy Ghost? <laughs> you know you sold this. Was it not in your power to do that if you wanted to? Was it not in your power to give what you wanted to give? Why did you lie about it? All you had to say was, I've sold the land for such and such, but we're not giving that all. We're giving a certain amount of it. And that would have been fine. It was their land, it was their money. But they lied about it. And they fell down at Peter's feet dead. And great fear fell on the church. I bet you it did. If that happened today, if we, if we lied, to die, lied today to God and we dropped down dead, let me tell you, great fear would come into the church, wouldn't it? We'd be all searching our hearts, wouldn't we? A few hours later, his wife comes in. And Peter said to her, Sapphira, did you sell the land for such and such? He's given her a chance to repent. Ananias didn't get the chance, but he's given her the chance. How are you going to answer? 
did you sell the land for such and such? Now, at that point, she should have twigged on. Why is he asking that? Does he know something? But she brazened it out, just like Gehazi. She brazened it out. She says, yes, for such and such. He says, the feet of those that carried out your husband, listen, they're at the door, they're going to carry you out. And she fell down dead. Here is Elisha giving Gehazi the chance to repent, and he brazens it out, and he doesn't take it. And he said, your servant did not go anywhere. And when he said that, his fate was sealed. Then he said to him, did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Gehazi. His heart must have melted at that point. His legs must have went like rubber. Did not my heart go with you when the man turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and receive clothing? Olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Now we're seeing what's in his heart. He got what he asked for, the money and the clothes. But there was more than that in his heart. There was olive groves. There was vineyards. There was oxen. There was male, female servants. There was a big house. He wanted to be wealthy and rich. He didn't want to be eating stew and barley loaves like all those sons of the prophets. <laughs> no, no. He had this lifestyle he wanted. That's what was in his heart. Nothing wrong with that, by the way, if that's what God has for you. But he didn't have it for him. And so God reveals what's in his heart. The God of mammon was in his heart. And you can't serve two gods. Sure you can't. You can't serve God. You can't serve riches. Either one or the other. And he had made up his mind which one he wanted to serve. And it wasn't God. It was riches. You know the tragedy of this story is that he could have been the he could have been the one to follow Elisha, just as Elisha followed Elijah. We could have been reading stories about his exploits today. Why do you think he was Elisha's servant? Why do you think he was picked out and to be trained? Not like the rest of the sons of the prophets. He had special privileges. Like Demas, who was with Paul, special position to be in, but yet forsook me having loved this present world. Same as Gehazi. Then the tragedy of all tragedies. Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence leprous as white as snow. Just as that leprosy had instantly left Naaman's body, it instantly clung to Gehazi. My late brother-in-law, he preached one time in this message 
And he said that he wanted the clothes. He wanted a nice new suit. Damascus material, the best. So he said he got a new suit, all right. God gave him one. Snow white and skin tight. <laughs> no wonder Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, not to chase after riches. In fact, he says, man of God, flee these things. Yes, he said, the workman's worthy of his hire, but don't let riches rule your heart, Timothy. So many lessons. Flee these things, he said. God will bless you. He'll be worthy of your hire. He'll take care of you, but don't let riches rule your heart. And riches rule Gehazi's heart. And he followed after it. And he got it. But it destroyed him in the process. Paul says, many chasing after these things pierce themselves through. Bring damage to themselves. Gehazi is a classic example. So here's Gehazi. Had a wonderful golden opportunity to serve the Lord. To be the next great prophet in Israel. And he completely blew it because his heart wasn't right. I say, well, why in the world did Elisha the prophet choose him? I don't know. I don't know. Jesus had a Judas in his camp. But he could have repented. Where did you go get his eye today? At that moment, he could have repented. And God would have forgiven him cleansed him of that but he didn't and he lost everything everything including his health including it carried on into his offspring what a shame what a disaster but what a mighty prophet of God was Elisha couldn't be bought <laughs> couldn't be bribed <laughs> cared not for rank or status the only thing he cared about was the glory of God. Gehazi wanted the gold. Elisha wanted the glory to go to God. What a difference, amen? Yes, Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. You can also watch the Sermon of the Month video at youtube.com forward slash Moira Pentecostal or download the sermon video through our iTunes video podcast. For more information, visit us at www.mpc.org.uk.